Section 13 of The Most Extraordinary Trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Section 13. The Defence. Seventh Day Continued. Mr. Sergeant Shee then rose to open the defence. He said, In rising to perform the task which it now becomes my duty to discharge, I feel, gentlemen of the jury, an almost overwhelming sense of responsibility. Once only has it before fallen to my lot to defend a fellow creature charged with a capital offence. You can well understand that to take a leading part in a trial of this kind is sufficient to disturb the calmest temper and try the clearest judgment, even if the effort only lasts for one day. But how much more trying is it to stand for six long days under the shade, as it were, of the scaffold, conscious that the least error in judgment may consign my client to an ignominious death and public indignation? It is useless for me to conceal that which all your endeavours to keep your minds free from prejudice cannot wholly efface from your recollection. You perfectly well know that for six long months, under the sanction and upon the authority of science, an opinion has almost universally prevailed that the blood of John Parsons Cook has risen from the ground to bear witness against the prisoner. You know that a conviction of the guilt of the prisoner has impressed itself upon the whole population, and that by the whole population has been raised, in a delirium of horror and indignation, the cry of blood for blood. You cannot have entered upon the discharge of your duty, which, as I have well observed, you have most conscientiously endeavoured to perform, without, to a great extent, sharing in that conviction before you knew that you would have to sit in that box to pass judgment between the prisoner and the crown you might with perfect propriety after reading the evidence taken before the coroner's jury have formed an opinion with regard to the guilt or innocence of the prisoner the very circumstances under which we meet in this place are of a character to excite in me mingled feelings of encouragement and alarm those whose duty it is to watch over the safety of the queen's subjects felt so much apprehension lest the course of justice should be disturbed by the popular prejudice which had been excited against the prisoner they were so much alarmed that an unjust verdict might in the midst of that prejudice be passed against him that an extraordinary measure of precaution was taken not only by her majesty's government but also by the legislature an act of parliament which originated in that branch of the legislature to which the noble and learned lord who presides here belongs and was sanctioned by him was passed to prevent the possibility of an injustice being done through the adherence to the ordinary forms of law in the case of william palmer the crown also under the advice of its responsible ministers resolved that this prosecution should not be left in private hands, but that its own law officer, my learned friend the Attorney-General, should take upon himself the responsibility of conducting it. And my learned friend, when that duty was entrusted to him, 
did what I must say will forever redound to his honour. He resolved that, in a case in which so much prejudice had been excited, all the evidence which it was intended to press against the prisoner should, as soon as he received it, be communicated to the prisoner's counsel. I must therefore tell my unhappy client that everything which the constituted authorities of the land, everything which the legislature and the law officers of the crown could do to secure a fair and impartial trial, has been done, and if that unhappily an injustice should on either side be committed, the whole responsibility will rest upon my lords and upon the jury. A most able man was selected by the prisoner as his counsel not many weeks ago, but unfortunately was prevented by illness from discharging that office. I have endeavoured, to the best of my ability, to supply his place, but I cannot deny that I labour under a deep feeling of responsibility, although the national effort, so to speak, which has been made to ensure a fair trial, is a great cause of encouragement to me. I am moved by the task that is before me, but I am not dismayed. I have this further cause for not being altogether overcome in discussing the mass of evidence which has been laid before you. When the papers in the case came into my hands, I had formed no opinion as to the guilt or innocence of the prisoner. My mind was perfectly free to form what I trust will prove to be a right judgment upon the case, and, I say it in all sincerity, having read these papers, I commenced his defence with an entire conviction of his innocence. I believe that truer words were never pronounced than the words he uttered when he said, not guilty, to this charge, and if I fail in establishing his innocence to your satisfaction, I shall have very great misgivings that my failure is attributable only to my own inability to do justice to his case, and not to any weakness in the case itself. I will prove to you the sincerity with which I declare my conviction of the prisoner's innocence, by meeting the case for the prosecution, foot to foot, and grappling with every difficulty which has been suggested by my learned friend. You will see that I shall avoid no point which has been raised. I will deal fairly with you, and know that I shall have your patient attention to an address which must, I fear, unavoidably be a long one, but in which no observation will be introduced which does not necessarily and properly belong to the case. The proposition which my learned friend undertakes to establish entirely by circumstantial evidence may be shortly stated. It is that the prisoner, having in the second week in November made up his mind that it was his interest to get rid of John Parsons Cook, deliberately prepared his body for the reception of a deadly poison by the slower poison of antimony, and that he afterwards dispatched him by the deadly poison of strychnine. Now no jury will convict a man of the crime thus charged, unless it be made clear in the first place that he had some motive for its commission, some strong reason for desiring the death of the deceased, in the second place that the symptoms before death and the appearance of the body after death are consistent with the theory that he died by poison, and in the third place that they are inconsistent with the theory that death proceeded from natural causes. 
Under these three heads I shall discuss the large mass of evidence which has been laid before you, and I must, by adhering to that order, exhaust the whole subject and leave myself no chance of evading any difficulty without immediate detection. Before, however, I proceed to grapple in these close quarters with the case for the Crown, allow me to restore to its proper place in the discussion a fact which, although it was by no means concealed by my learned friend in that address by which he at once seized upon your judgments, appeared to me to be thrown too much into the shade. The fact, I mean, that strychnine was not found in the body of the unfortunate deceased. If he died of the poison of strychnine, if he died within a few hours or within a quarter of an hour or twenty minutes of the administration of a strong dose, if the post-mortem examination took place within six days of the death, there is not the least reason to suppose that between the time of the injection of the poison and the paroxysms of death there was any dilution of it or any ejection of it by vomiting. Never, therefore, unless chemical analysis is altogether a failure in the detection of strychnine, were circumstances more favourable for its discovery. But, beyond all question, strychnine was not found. Whatever we may think of the judgment and experience of Dr. Taylor, we have no reason to doubt that he is a very skilful chemist. We have no reason to believe, in fact we know to the contrary, that he and Dr. Rees did not do all that the science of chemical analysis could enable men to do to detect the poison. They had a distinct intimation from the executor and near relative of the deceased that he, for some cause or another, had reason to suspect that poison had been administered. They undertook an analysis of the stomach, which, without now going into details upon that point, was not, on the whole, in an unfavourable condition, with a firm expectation that if it was there it would be found, and without any doubt as to the efficiency of their tests. Then, in December, they say, quote, We do not find strychnine, prussic acid, or any trace of opium, from the contents having been drained away. Not drained out of the jar, you know. It is now impossible to say whether any strychnine had or had not been given before death, but it is quite possible for tartar emetic to destroy life if given in repeated doses, and, so far as we can at present form an opinion, in the absence of any natural cause of death, the deceased may have died from the effects of antimony in this or some other form. End quote but they afterwards attended the inquest, and having heard the evidence of Mills, of Mr. Jones, of Lutterworth, and of Roberts, who spoke to the purchase of strychnine on the morning of the death, they came to the conclusion that the pills administered to Cook on the Monday and the Tuesday night contained strychnine. Dr. Taylor came to that conclusion, notwithstanding his written opinion, that Cook might have been poisoned by antimony and notwithstanding the fact that no trace of strychnine was found in the body. I call your attention now to this circumstance in order to claim for it its proper place in the discussion. The gentlemen who have come to the conclusion that strychnine may have been in the body, although it was not found, 
have arrived at that conclusion from experiments of a very partial kind indeed. They contend that when strychnine has once done its fatal work and become absorbed into the, into the system, it ceases to be the thing it was when taken into the system. It becomes decomposed, its elements are separated from each other, and therefore are no longer capable of responding to the tests which would certainly detect its presence if undecomposed. That is their case. They account for its not being found, and for their belief that it destroyed Cook by that hypothesis. Now, it is only a hypothesis. No authority for it can be drawn from experiments, and it is supported by the opinion of no eminent toxicologists but themselves. It is only fair to them, and to Dr. Taylor in particular, to say that Dr. Taylor does propound that theory in his book. It is, however, only a theory of his own. He does not support it by the authority of any distinguished toxicologist, and when we recollect that his knowledge of the matter, good, humane man, consists in having poisoned five rabbits twenty-five years ago, and five others since this question was raised, it cannot have much weight. But I will call before you a number of gentlemen of high eminence in their professions as analytical chemists, who will state their utter renunciation of that theory. I will call Dr. Nunnally, a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons and a professor of chemistry, who attended the case at Leeds, which has been described to you, and Dr. Williams, Professor of Materia Medica at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, for eighteen years surgeon to the city of Dublin Hospital. Dr. Letherby, one of the ablest and most distinguished men of science in this great city, Professor of Chemistry and Toxicology in the Medical College of the London Hospital, and Medical Officer of the City of London will tell you that he rejects the theory as a heresy unworthy the belief of scientific men. Dr. Nicholas Parker, of the College of Physicians of London, and Professor of Medicine, Dr. Robinson, of the College of Physicians, and Mr. Rogers, Professor of Chemistry, concur with Dr. Leatherby. Lastly, I will call Mr. William Herapath, of Bristol, probably the most eminent chemical analyst in this country, who also utterly rejects the theory. All of those gentlemen contend that if not only half a grain of strychnine, but even one-fiftieth part or less has once entered into the human frame, it can and must be discovered by the tests known to chemists. They will tell you this, not as the result of a few experiments, forever regretted, upon five rabbits, but from large experience as to the operation of the poison upon the inferior animals created, as you know, for the benefit of mankind, and many of them from their experience as to its effects upon the human system. I will satisfy you from their evidence that if you admit the correctness of the tests which were used, the only safe conclusion at which you can arrive is that strychnine not having been found in the body, it could never have been there. They all agree, too, that no degree of putrefaction or fermentation in the human system 
could so decompose strychnine that it could no longer possess those qualities which cause it, in the undecomposed state, to respond to chemical tests. I will now apply myself to a question which in my judgment is of equal, if not greater, importance. The question whether, in the second week of November, 1855, the prisoner had a motive for the commission of this murder, a strong reason for desiring that Cook should die. I never will believe that unless it were made clear that it was his interest to destroy Cook, you would come to the conclusion that he had committed such a crime. It seems to me abundantly clear upon the evidence that not only was it not the interest of Palmer that Cook should die, but that the death of Cook was the very worst calamity that could befall him, and that he could not possibly be ignorant that it would be followed by his own ruin. That it was followed by his immediate ruin, we know. We know that at the time when it was said he commenced to plot Cook's death, he was in a condition of the greatest embarrassment, an embarrassment which in its extreme intensity had come upon him but recently an embarrassment too in some degree mitigated by the circumstance that the acceptances he is said to have forged were those of his mother a lady of large fortune living in the town my learned friend's hypothesis is that not until he was in a state of the greatest embarrassment did he wish to destroy cook my learned friend stated to you quote, that being in desperate circumstances with ruin disgrace and punishment staring him in the face which could only be averted by means of money he took advantage of his intimacy with cook when cook had become the winner of a considerable sum to destroy him in order to obtain possession of his money End quote. let us test this theory let us relieve our minds for a moment from the anxiety we must always feel when the life of a fellow-creature is at stake and looking at it as a mere matter of business let us ask ourselves whether in the second week of november palmer had any motive to commit this crime when a long correspondence is read to a jury who are without the same means of testing its importance as the judge or the counsel they frequently do not attach that weight to it which it deserves but i watched the correspondence which was read to you yesterday with an anxiety which no words can express because i firmly believe that in it the innocence of the prisoner lay concealed that it proved not only that the prisoner had no motive to kill cook but that cook's death was ruin to him allow me to call your attention to the relation in which these men stood to each other they had been intimate as racing friends for two or three years. They had had many transactions together. They were jointly interested in at least one racehorse, Pyrene. They generally stayed at the same hotels. They were seen together upon almost all the racecourses in the kingdom. They were known to be connected in adventures upon the same horses at the same races. And although, Cook being dead, the mouth of the prisoner being sealed, and transactions of this kind not being recorded in regular books, it is impossible to give you positive evidence as to their relations to one another. It is abundantly clear that they were very closely connected. In August 1855, money was wanted either by Cook or Palmer, and Palmer applied to Pratt for it. 
he seems to have wanted two hundred pounds to make up a larger sum having already one hundred and ninety pounds in pratt's hands and he offered a security for the advance his friend mr cook whom he described as a gentleman of respectability and substance we do not know the exact state of cook's affairs at that time as he might have been thrown down in a week with the life he was leading but a young man who is reckless as to the mode in which he employs his money and has only thirteen thousand pounds may for a year or two pass before the world for a man of considerable means it is not every one who will go to doctors commons to ascertain the precise amount of the property he has inherited mr cook of lutterworth kept his racehorses lived expensively was known to have inherited a fortune and was altogether a person whose friendship was of considerable importance to a man like palmer recollect that i am not now defending palmer against the crime of forgery nor am i defending him against the imputation of reckless improvidence in obtaining money at an enormous discount but as early as may eighteen fifty five palmer and cook were thus circumstanced what was their position in november the evidence of pratt and the correspondence which he proved can leave no doubt on our minds upon that subject among a mass of bills amounting altogether to eleven thousand five hundred pounds there were two of two thousand pounds each due the last week in october two others amounting to fifteen hundred pounds having become due some time before but being held over from month to month upon payment by palmer who was liable for them of what was called interest at the rate of sixty per cent these three sums two thousand pounds two thousand pounds and fifteen hundred pounds were the embarrassments which were pressing upon him in the second week of november and be it observed they were pressed upon him by a man who although he would doubtless have been glad to get his principal would also upon anything like security have been very well pleased to continue to receive interest how can capital if well secured be better employed than in returning forty or sixty per cent in this state of things palmer in answer to an urgent demand for money came up to town on the twenty seventh of october pratt then insisted that if palmer could not pay one of the two thousand pound bills which had just become due he should pay instalments in addition to the enormous interest charged upon it and it was agreed that two hundred and fifty pounds should be paid down two hundred and fifty pounds upon the thirty first of october and a further sum of three hundred pounds as soon afterwards as possible making a total payment on account of that bill of eight hundred pounds to quiet pratt or his client and to induce him to let the bill stand over on the ninth of november the three hundred pounds was paid and then a letter was written to which i beg your particular attention on the thirteenth of november the day that polestar won the race pratt wrote to palmer that the case palmer against the prince of wales insurance company had been laid before sir f kelly that in the opinion of several secretaries of insurance offices the company had not a leg to stand upon and that the mere fact of the enormous premium would go a great way to get a verdict the letter concluded quote, 
I count most positively on seeing you on Saturday. Do, for both our sakes, try and make up the amount to £1,000, for without it I shall be unable to renew the £1,500 due on the ninth. End quote. Pratt had threatened to issue a writ against Palmer's mother. Palmer had almost gone upon his knees to beg him not to do so, and this letter really meant, quote, unless you give me two hundred pounds more and make up one thousand pounds, a writ shall be served upon your mother. End quote. That letter is written on the thirteenth of November. Palmer gets it at Rugeley, whither he had gone from the racecourse on the day that Polestar won. What does he do? He instantly returns to Shrewsbury, gets there on Wednesday, sees Cook. They say he doses him. We will see how probable that is presently. Cook goes to bed, in a state I will not describe, gets up next morning, much more sensible than he went to bed, goes upon the racecourse, returns with Palmer to Rugeley upon the Thursday, goes to bed, gets up next morning still uncomfortable, but able to go and dine with Palmer on that day, Friday. On that day, the 16th of November, Palmer writes to Pratt, quote, I am obliged to come to Tattersall's on Monday to the settling, so that I shall not call and see you before Monday. But a friend of mine will call and leave you two hundred pounds tomorrow, and I will give you the remainder on Monday. End quote. The person who ordinarily settled Cook's accounts was a person named Fisher, a wine merchant in Shoe Lane, who was first called in this case. And on that very day, the day on which Cook dined with Palmer, Cook writes to him, quote, It is of great importance, both to Mr. Palmer and myself, that a sum of £500 should be paid to a Mr. Pratt of 5 Queen Street, Mayfair, tomorrow, without fail. £300 has been sent up tonight, and if you will be kind enough to pay the other £200 tomorrow, on the receipt of this, you will greatly oblige me and I will give it to you on Monday at Tattersall's, end quote. There is a postscript, which I will read, but upon which I will at present make no observation. Quote, I am much better, end quote. What is the fair inference from these letters? I submit that the inference is that at that date Cook was making himself very useful to Palmer, Pratt was pressing for an additional sum of £200. Palmer communicated his difficulty to Cook, who at once wrote to his agent to pay the £200. More than this, the £300 referred to in the letter as having been paid tonight. The Attorney General, the other day, means one of these things. It either means the £300 which had been sent up on the 9th of November, and if it did, then Cook knew all about it, probably had an interest in Palmer's transactions with Pratt, or if it was a false representation put forward merely for the purpose of putting a good face upon the matter to Fisher, or it means that on that day £300 had somehow or other come into their hands, and had been by Cook made applicable to the convenience of palmer whichever way you take it it proves to demonstration that palmer and cook were playing into each other's hands with respect to that heavy encumbrance upon palmer and that palmer could rely upon cook 
as his fast friend in any such difficulties although when we take the sum total of eleven thousand five hundred pounds his difficulties sound large yet the difficulty of the day was nothing like that because in the reckless spendthrift way in which they were living putting on bills from month to month and paying an enormous interest per annum the actual outlay upon the day of putting on was not considerable i submit that this letter shows that on the day on which it is said that palmer was poisoning cook the sixteenth of november cook was acting towards him in a most friendly manner was acquainted with his circumstances and willing to relieve his embarrassments and actually did devote a portion of his earnings to palmer's purposes i will however make this plainer part of the case of my learned friend is that palmer leaving cook ill in bed at rugeley ran up to town on the monday and intending to dispatch cook that night obtained possession of his shrewsbury winnings by telling herring who was not cook's usual agent that he was authorised by cook to settle his shrewsbury transactions at tattersall's on the monday as on the tuesday cook though generally indisposed was during the greater part of the day quite well he got up and saw his trainer and two jockeys the theory of the case for the prosecution is that he was quite well because palmer was not there to dose him you will see how grossly and contemptibly absurd that is presently being well on monday and tuesday do you not think that had not cook known that palmer did not intend to go to his regular agent fisher he would have been very much surprised that he on tuesday morning received no letter from that gentleman informing him of the settlement of his transactions and could palmer as a man of business have relied upon an absence of such surprise and alarm on the part of cook we have the evidence of fisher that he at cook's request contained in the letter of the seventeenth of november advanced the two hundred pounds which he would had he settled cook's affairs have been entitled to deduct from the money he would have received at tattersall's on the monday he did not settle those affairs and the money has never been paid that explains the whole transaction cook and palmer understood each other perfectly well it was the interest of both of them that palmer should be relieved from the pressure of pratt accordingly cook said quote, this settlement shall not go through fisher's hands we have got to pay the two hundred pounds to pratt but it shall not be repaid to him on monday i will let palmer go to london and settle the whole thing through herring End quote. that was done and accordingly fisher has never been paid there is a letter to which i will particularly call your attention it is one sent by palmer to pratt on the nineteenth november eighteen fifty five you will place the fifty pounds which i have just paid you and the four hundred and fifty pounds you will receive by mr herring together five hundred pounds and the two hundred pounds you received on saturday that is the two hundred pounds which fisher paid to pratt at the express request of cook towards payment of my mother's acceptance for two thousand pounds due on the twenty fifth of october making paid to this day the sum of thirteen hundred pounds taking that letter with the one which cook wrote to fisher on friday the sixteenth 
can you doubt that on that day cook was a most convenient friend to palmer who could not by possibility do without him it does not end there cook died at one o'clock on the morning of wednesday the twenty first of november if we want to know what influence that death had upon palmer we must take it from the letters on the twenty second of november and i am sure you will make some allowance for a day having elapsed from the death of cook palmer writes to pratt quote, ever since i saw you i have been fully engaged with cook and not able to leave home End quote. unless he murdered cook that is the truest sentence that ever was penned he watched the bedside of his friend he was with him night and day he attended him as a brother he called his friends around him he did all that the most affectionate solicitude could do for a friend unless he was plotting his death quote, ever since i saw you i have been fully engaged with cook and not able to leave home i am sorry to say after all he died this day so you had better write to saunders but mind you i must have polestar if it can be so arranged and should any one call upon you to know what money or monies cook ever had from you don't answer the question till i have seen you End quote. Quote, i will send you the seventy-five pounds to-morrow as soon as i have been to manchester you shall hear about the monies i sat up two full nights with cook and am very much tired out End quote. and did he not was it not true it may not be true that he sat up the whole of the nights but he was ready to be called if cook should be ill elizabeth mills says that after the first serious paroxysm on the monday night she left palmer in the armchair sleeping by the side of the man whom the prosecution say he had attempted to murder no murderers do not sleep by their victims what was pratt's answer to palmer's letter i will read it that you may see what quick run cook's death brought upon palmer that answer dated november twenty second is as follows Quote, i have your note and am greatly disappointed at the non-receipt of the money as promised and at the vague assurances as to any money i can understand tis true that your being detained by the illness of your friend has been the cause of not sending up the larger amount but the smaller sum you ought to have sent if anything unpleasant occurs you must thank yourself the death of mr cook will now compel you to look about as to the payment of the bill for five hundred pounds on the second of december i have written to saunders informing him of my claim and requesting to know by return what claim he has for keeping and training i send down copy of bill of sale to crubble to see it enforced so that the first effect of cook's death was in the opinion of pratt who knew all about it to saddle palmer with the sum of five hundred pounds now i will undertake to satisfy you that the transactions out of which that bill for five hundred pounds arose were transactions for cook's benefit and in which palmer lent his name to accommodate cook upon whose death he became primarily and alone responsible for the bill let me state that the view which my learned friend the attorney-general takes of that transaction because i intend to meet his case foot by foot and i shall i hope convince him 
that, if he had had the option, he would never have taken up this case. The crown would never have appeared in it. The universal feeling in the country was, however, such as to render it impossible that the case should not be tried. After the verdict of willful murder had been obtained upon the evidence of Dr. Taylor, and the Crown felt that it would be neglecting its solemn duty to protect every one of the Queen's subjects, if it did not take care that a man against whom there was no such prejudice, a man leading the life which Palmer has led, disgraced, as it were, by forgeries to a large amount, and a gambler by profession, should have a fair trial. There was no way of securing that, as my learned friend at once saw, no possibility of the prisoner's being saved, except by giving to the counsel who defended him all the information which my learned friend himself possessed. The view which my learned friend takes of the five hundred pounds of transaction, the theory on which he thinks it probable that Palmer plotted the death of Cook, is this. Quote, Pratt still declining to advance the money, Palmer proposed an assignment by Cook of two racehorses, one called Polestar, which won the Shrewsbury races, and another called Sirius. That assignment was afterwards executed by Cook in favour of Pratt, and Cook, therefore, was clearly entitled to the money which was raised upon that security, which realised £375 in cash, and a wine warrant for £65. Palmer contrived, however, that the money and the wine warrant should be sent to him and not to Cook. Mr. Pratt sent down his cheque to Palmer in the country on a stamp, as the Act of Parliament required, and he availed himself of the opportunity now afforded by law of striking out the word bearer and writing order, the effect of which was to necessitate the endorsement of Cook on the back of the cheque. It was not intended by Palmer that those proceeds should fall into Cook's hands, and accordingly he forged the name of John Parsons Cook on the back of that cheque. Cook never received the money, and you will see that within ten days from that period when he came to his end, the bill in respect of that transaction, which was at three months, would have fallen due, when it must have become apparent that Palmer received the money and that, in order to obtain it, he had forged the endorsement of Cook. That is the view which the prosecution take of the case, and I think I shall be able to satisfy you that it cannot possibly be the correct one. We know from Pratt exactly what took place. Palmer wrote to him, saying, quote, I have undertaken to get the enclosed bill cashed for Mr. Cook. You have the £200 bill of his. He is a very good and responsible man. Will you do it? I will put my name to the bill. So that it was represented to Pratt as a transaction for the accommodation of Cook. Pratt's answer to that is, quote, If Mr. Cook chooses to give me security, I have no objection. But he must execute a bill of sale on his two horses, Polestar and Sirius. More, he must execute a power of attorney, and his signature to both must be witnessed by some solicitor in the country, so that I may be quite sure that it is a really valid security. 
if cook will do that i will give him three hundred and seventy five pounds in money and a wine warrant for sixty five pounds which charging ten pounds for expenses and fifty pounds for discount will make five hundred pounds there can be no doubt that cook attached great value to sirius and polestar which mayor was probably then booked for the engagements in which she won so much money at shrewsbury and it is to the last degree improbable that he would have executed this bill of sale with a power of attorney to enable the mortgage or assignee to enforce it at once effectually and yet have received no money would he if such had been the case have remained quiet to the day of his death and never have written to pratt to say that although he had sent him the required documents he had never received the money cook was as much in want of money as palmer was and would he thus have thrown away his money is it credible that if palmer had misappropriated the cheque he could for three months have kept cook in ignorance of the transaction is it not probable that cook's name was written on the cheque with his full knowledge and consent it is not suggested that there was any attempt to imitate his handwriting is it not more probable that cook who i will prove to you from the letter wanted ready money and who would probably be put to inconvenience by receiving only a cheque which he could not get cash for a day or two took the ready money three hundred and fifteen pounds which pratt sent at the same time to palmer and that palmer took the cheque on the sixth of september palmer wrote to pratt quote, i received the cheque for one hundred pounds and will thank you to let me have the three hundred and fifteen pounds by return of post if possible if not send it me certain by monday night's post to the post office doncaster i now return you cook's papers signed etc and he wants the money on saturday if he can have it but i have not promised it for saturday i told him he should have it on tuesday morning at doncaster so please enclose it with mine in cash in a registered letter and he must pay for it being registered do not let it be later than monday night's post to doncaster so that palmer asked that it should be sent like his own cook according to the letter wanting it in cash pratt replied to palmer acknowledging the receipt of the documents and promising that he would send him his money to doncaster on the monday and would endeavour to let cook have his at the same time on the ninth of september palmer wrote to pratt quote, you must send me for mr cook by monday night's post to the post office doncaster three hundred and eighty five pounds instead of three hundred and seventy five pounds and the wine warrant so that i can hand it to him with the three hundred and seventy five pounds and that will be allowing you fifty pounds for the discount etc i shall then get ten pounds and i expect i shall have to take the wine and give him the money but i shall not do so if you do not send three hundred and eighty five pounds and be good enough to enclose my three hundred and fifteen pounds with it in cash in a registered letter and direct it to me at the post office doncaster in these letters there is an intimation that cook wanted the money on the saturday he was inconvenienced by only getting a cheque upon london which he could not immediately change and therefore palmer gave him the money and took the cheque it is remarkable that when we look at the banking account of palmer at rugeley 
we find that the £375 is paid in by somebody to his account, but that the £315 is not paid in to his account at all. The bill was accepted for Cook's accommodation. Cook gave security for it, and he never, during the three months which elapsed before his death, complained to Pratt that he had not received the money for it. I submit that the fair version of the transaction is that which is given in a letter from Palmer, that Palmer let Cook have the cash, and himself took the cheque, having Cook's authority to put his name at the back of it. How else can you account for the silence of Cook, and for the fact that the £375 is paid into the Rugeley Bank, but there is no trace of the £315? This being so, the result of Cook's death was to make Palmer liable for the £500 bill on the back of which he had put his name. Therefore, I submit to you that on the second motive suggested by my learned friend, the Attorney-General, the case has entirely failed. In addition to this, however, we find from these letters the difficulties which the death of Cook brought upon Palmer. We find the disappointment of Pratt that he could send no more money the bill of five hundred pounds, the danger of losing Polestar, which Palmer very much wanted to have, and which Pratt would, unless paid the five hundred pounds, bring to the hammer, in order to realise his security, and we find that inquiries were at once apprehended from Cook's friends as to the monies which Pratt had paid to Cook, and the probable value which the latter had received from the endorsements and acceptances which he had given. There is another although not so strong a reason, why it is improbable that Palmer should have desired the death of Cook. Mr. Weatherby has told us to-day that, although it frequently happens that the monies won at a race are sent up by the clerk of the course in the week after the race, yet that does not always happen. On Tuesday, November the 20th, on the night of which day he died, Cook, who was then perfectly sensible, perfectly comfortable and happy, and enjoying the society of his friend Mr. Jones, gave to Palmer a cheque for £350 upon Weatherby's. If Palmer killed Cook, and it happened that Frail had not sent up the money so as to be there on Wednesday morning, Weatherby's would not pay the cheque, nor would they have cashed it if they had received information that Cook had died during the night. It actually happened that the cheque when presented was not paid, because Frail did not send up the money. Was it probable that Palmer, having got from Cook a cheque for £380, would have run the risk of losing his money by destroying him the same night? It is suggested that he obtained this cheque fraudulently, and then, lest Cook should detect the fraud, destroyed him. That was not likely to answer his purpose. He might be certain that directly the breath was out of Cook's body, Jones would go to Mr. Stevens, that Stevens and Bradford, Cook's brother-in-law, would go down to Rugeley, that the death being sudden, there would most likely be a post-mortem examination, and that, instead of settling for the £500 bill and the £350 cheque with Cook, he would have to settle with hard men of business, men who cared nothing for him who would probably look upon him as a leg upon the turf, and would regard neither his feelings nor his interests, but would let him go to ruin any way he might, 
not stirring a finger to save him. Is it probable that a shrewd, intelligent man of business would make such a choice as that? More than this, we know that at that very time Herring held one bill for five hundred pounds and three for two hundred pounds each, to which there were the names of both Palmer and Cook, and for all of which, either in the whole or in part, Cook must, unless he rushed to his own ruin, provide. If Palmer put Cook to death, he immediately became solely liable, not only for these bills, but for that as security for which the bill of sale was executed on Sirius and Polestar, which could not be so easily renewed as those for the large sums on which the enormous usury was paid. That bill would very likely soon find its way to his mother, and that it should do so would not suit Palmer, for his mother is a respectable and serious person, who, although she loved her son, did not like and gave no encouragement to his gambling. Nor did that excellent and most honourable man who stands by him, his brother, who was estranged from him for a length of time until this calamity came upon him, simply because he disapproved of gambling. He disapproved the gambling by which he lived. Cook being dead, there was, therefore, no one to save Palmer from ruin, for in all this voluminous evidence there is not the smallest trace that there was any one else in the world who would lend Palmer his name or would assist him to obtain money. If it be, as it is stated, a fact that he forged the name of his mother, is not that conclusive evidence that he had no other resource but the good nature, the easiness, perhaps the folly, of Cook? Is it then credible that under such circumstances he would have desired to bring upon himself not merely the creditors and executors of Cook, but their solicitors, men who, in the discharge of their duty to their clients, can have no sympathy for anyone, and with whom no arrangement is possible? I have, therefore, I hope, shown you that Palmer had an interest in the life of Cook, but more than that, was it safe for him that Cook should die? Palmer was a man who had a shrewd knowledge of the world, and a knowledge of his profession, and, among other things, of chemistry. My learned friends have put in a book, which was found in his house, and, among other notes, one in which there is this, quote, Strychnia kills by causing tetanic fixing of the respiratory muscles. End quote. In the same book there are many other notes. Lord Campbell the Attorney-General stated that he did not place much reliance upon that note. Mr. Sergeant Shee My learned friend did not press this note, but he thought it was evidence which ought to be before you, the jury. I use it to satisfy you that Palmer had studied his profession sufficiently to know, and knew perfectly well, that if strychnine were administered, it would in all probability kill the victim in horrible convulsions in a very short time, and in a way so striking as to be the talk of a small neighbourhood like Rugeley for a month or more, time enough to alarm everybody and provoke inquiry into the circumstances of the death, which must certainly, in all probability, end in the detection of guilt. If that is so, was he at that time so circumstanced as to render it safe for him to run the risk of such suspicions? 
His brother, Walter Palmer, had died in the month of August, and unless his mother forgave him, or recognised the acceptance, his only hope of extraction from his difficulties lay in getting from the Prince of Wales' office the money due to him as assignee of the policy on his brother's life. That his chance of getting that money was good is shown by the fact that he refused the offer of the office to return the premium, and that it was upon it that Pratt had obtained the discounts, and had resolved, under the direction of Palmer, to put it in suit. It was really the only unpledged property which he had, and how he was situated with regard to it appears from the letters and from the evidence. The insurance company, annoyed at being called upon to pay so large a sum, was determined to do all they could to resist it. They accordingly sent Inspector Field and his man to Stafford to make inquiries. They could not do this without talking, and this has been going on for some time. To show that this had been the case, the learned sergeant read the deposition of the witness Dean, who was examined yesterday. So that just before the death of Cook, Palmer knew himself to be the subject of what he appeared from his actions to consider a most unfounded and unwarrantable suspicion. He put the policy into the hands of an attorney to enforce payment of the sum due upon it. The office met the claim by insinuations and inquiries which were of a nature to destroy his character and to bring upon his head the suspicion of a murder. The pressure by Pratt upon Palmer to meet the £2,000 bills did not commence until the office disputed the payment of that policy. All went as smooth as possible as long as Pratt held what he believed to be a good security, but when they began to dispute that, Pratt writes to Palmer and tells him that the state of things is changed. After saying that nothing can be done towards compelling the office to pay until the 24th, he says in his letter of the 2nd of October, quote, This, you will observe, quite alters arrangements, and I therefore must request that you make preparations for meeting the two bills due at the end of this month. In any event, bear in mind that you must be prepared to cover your mother's acceptances for the £4,000 due at the end of the month. End quote. There was the pinch. The office would not pay and bills for £4,000 were coming due. If anything occurred to increase the suspicions of the office, which was very, very unwilling to pay, all chance of the £13,000 was lost. That £13,000 is sure to be paid, unless that man, pointing to the prisoner, is convicted of murder. As sure as he is saved, and saved I believe he will be, that £13,000 will be paid. There is no defence, no pretence of a defence. The premium taken was an enormous one, and that £13,000 is good for him and will pay all his creditors. This correspondence, of which my learned friend must have taken a view different from any which I can take, but which I am sure he would have put in, whatever had been his view of it, this correspondence saves a prisoner if there is common sense in man. Here is another letter from Pratt to Palmer, dated October the 6th. Quote, I have your note acknowledging receipt by your mother of the £2,000 acceptance due on the 2nd of October. 
why not let her acknowledge it herself you must really not fail to come up at once if it be for the purpose of arranging for the payment of the two bills at the end of the month remember i can make no terms for their renewal and they must be paid i will of course hold the policy for so much as it is worth but in the present position of the affair no one except your mother who is liable upon the bills can look upon it as a security that was because simpson and field were down there making inquiries do not neglect attending to this for under a recent act bills of exchange are now recovered in a few days you know and can appreciate my conduct in avoiding all trouble and annoyance to your mother but to that there is a limit i cannot by any representation be a party to inducing anybody to believe that security exists where there is doubt upon the point p s i cast no doubt upon the capability of the office to pay but in the nature of things with so large an amount in question it is not to be surprised at if they think they have grounds of objection they should temporize by delay End quote. does not this show that on the sixth of october suspicions were hanging over palmer's head which would come down with irresistible momentum and crush him if there were a suspicion of another violent and sudden death do you think that a man who had written in his manual what were the effects of strychnine would risk such a scene as that poison would develop in the presence of the dearest and best friend of cook a man whom he could not influence and a medical man who loved cook so well as to sleep in the same room with him that he might be ready to attend him in case he needed assistance is that common sense are you going to enforce such a theory as that which dr a taylor propounded as to the effects which strychnine produces upon rabbits impossible perfectly impossible i reproved the position in which palmer stood still more clearly on the tenth of october pratt in a letter addressed to him says quote, i may add that i hear they the insurance company have been making inquiries in every direction to be sure they had field the detective officer had been at stratford where he could make inquiries as well as at rugeley but on what they ground their dissatisfaction is as yet a mystery in any event no step can be taken to compel payment until after the fourth of december End quote. it is plain that suspicions were then rife or that attempts were made to excite suspicions against him with regard to the death of walter palmer on the eighteenth of october pratt enclosed to palmer a letter from the solicitor of the company stating that the directors had determined upon declining to pay the amount claimed but that although the facts disclosed in the course of their inquiries would have warranted their retention of the premiums which had been paid they were prepared to refund them to any one who might be shown to be legally entitled to them palmer determined that the money should be paid and a case was laid before sir fitzroy kelly if anything happened to cook by foul play he had no more chance of receiving this thirteen thousand pounds than of obtaining a hundred and thirty thousand pounds from all this i infer not only that palmer had no interest in cook's death but that he had a direct pecuniary interest in his living i think it is impossible 
that i should be so much mistaken as that a considerable portion of what i have advanced should not be worthy of your attention and i therefore submit to you to the court and to my learned friend that the case as to this supposed motive for the crime has failed we now proceed to the facts of the case and in considering them it will be necessary to group them without entire reference to dates end of section thirteen